Hello, this is Dean Hess, Managing Editor of Respiratory Care. We are pleased that the October podcast is sponsored by Massimo. This is an introduction to Massimo Nasal High Flow Therapy. Soft flow provides warmed and humidified respiratory gases through a soft nasal cannula to spontaneously breathing patients with respiratory distress and other pulmonary conditions. Equipped with an advanced integrated flow generator that delivers consistent flow during inspiration and expiration, soft flow is designed to enhance therapy benefits while eliminating the need to connect to an external source of compressed air. Visit Massimo.com forward slash softflow to learn more. And now I turn the program over to the Editor-in-Chief for this month's podcast. Hello, and welcome to the October 2021 Editor's Commentary on Respiratory Care podcast. This is Rich Branson, Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. Thanks for joining us. This month's Editor's Choice by Roca and colleagues uses a post hoc analysis of a previous multi-center trial to evaluate the impact of driving pressure on the first day of mechanical ventilation on the later development of ARDS. They evaluated driving pressure in 1,575 subjects, 65 who developed ARDS, it's a small number, only 4%. Subjects with a driving pressure greater than 12 to 15 centimeters of water or driving pressure greater than 15 centimeters per water represented a higher probability of developing ARDS. They concluded that in subjects without ARDS, a higher driving pressure on day one was in fact associated with a greater risk of developing ARDS. Deontay and Fan provide editorial commentary suggesting that diagnosis and management of patients with ARDS remains a major challenge. Using driving pressure to guide ventilator settings could help avoid the need to distinguish between patients with injured and uninjured lungs, thus simplifying management. Napolitano and colleagues performed a bench study using different nasal cannula interfaces to for a CPAP in an infant lung model. They altered the cannula to vary from an occlusive fit to only a 70% occlusive fit in the, in the 3D printed NARES. They found CPAP was lower than set in the lung with non-occlusive cannula, which was masked by a higher resistance from the cannula. The authors concluded that interface choice and occlusive fit might be clinically important with regard to delivered airway pressures. Stadeni agrees that these pressure differences could have clinical significance, but notes that the goal of CPAP is application to the lung and that mouth leak may be even have a greater impact. Chalmers and others mined an existing ba- database of over 2,500 patients with community-acquired pneumonia, or ARDS, measuring the FiO2 trajectory as a marker of respiratory dysfunction. Worsening FiO2 trajectory was associated with the reduced ventilator-free days, and every increase in FiO2 of 0.1% from the previous day resulted in fewer ventilator-free days. The SF ratio trajectory also provided prognostic information as an increase in SpO2 FiO2 from the previous day was associated with increased ventilator-free days. They concluded that FiO2 trajectory alone was as good as the SF ratio and more easily monitored. I think this is no surprise to respiratory therapists who give report every day and say, well, this patient's FiO2 requirement is up over the last three days. Um, This is just a way of quantifying at the bedside. Sampson and colleagues opine that FiO2 is a commonly manipulated variable in the ICU, and we often err on the side of hyperoxemia to prevent the really 
untoward effects of hypoxemia. They suggest that simple FiO2 trajectory is a useful tool which could be made diagnostic using closed-loop control of oxygen to further refine the monitoring and the progression of lung injury. Martinez, Castro, and others present a bench evaluation of eight home care ventilators under 18 experimental conditions, evaluating delivered tidal volume, trigger response, pressurization, and synchrony. They found a wide range of performance characteristics with alterations in model effort and potentially important differences in trigger response times. Asynchrony was more common with higher levels of pressure support combined with reduced effort. They suggest these data might be used to match the right ventilator to the right patient. Of course, any bench testing is really only gives you an ability to rank the way a device works and not know the performance on the patient. Kaur et al. described the early identification of extubation failure using the integrated pulmonary index and other risk factors. This retrospective analysis evaluated 216 subjects and the main outcome was defined as reintubation or requirement for non-invasive ventilation within 48 hours. Extubation failure was associated with higher body mass index, severity of illness scores, and a fall in IPI within an hour following extubation. The findings implicate greater than three risk factors as an independent risk for failure. So IPI may be, may be useful, it may be more useful um, within other observations, um, but this needs to be done in a prospective fashion. Maddox and others performed a multi-center prospective observational trial in pediatric subjects treated with inhaled nitric oxide for pulmonary dysfunction. Subjects were categorized into four cohorts. Subjects born early preterm, so less than 32 weeks of post-conceptual age, late preterm, and full term. They reported that lower respiratory tract disease, but not a history of prematurity, was independently associated with lower mortality. They concluded that clinical trials evaluating inhaled nitric oxide should, use, should consider stratifying patients by early preterm status. Sorensen and coworkers compared arterial blood gases and transcutaneous measurements in subjects with COPD exacerbation. They included 57 measurements from 20 subjects to determine the bias for transcutaneous CO2 and transcutaneous PO2. The limits of agreement were 11 to 16 millimeters mercury for, for transcutaneous CO2 and minus 28 to 51 millimeters of mercury for transcutaneous PO2. They concluded that transcutaneous measurements of CO2 and O2 did not accurately reflect results from ABG analysis in hypercapnic subjects. We've published a number of studies looking at this transcutaneous method um, from the ear in adults um, and overwhelmingly um, it, it finds that it's not reliable um, to know if the patient's improving or not. Gentian and others evaluated the impact of pneumatic tube transport on measured blood gas and blood gas analyzed. Duplicate blood samples were drawn and one was walked to the lab while the other was sent via pneumatic tube transport. They reported that pneumatic tube transport of blood specimens was acceptable for blood gases and supplementary analytes and found no clinically or statistically significant differences between the samples. Dundek et al. described the evaluation of a bubble CPAP system developed for use in low resource settings. This is another kind of paper that we've published a number of um, papers by different authors on in the last two years. Using a bench model that included a 3D printed NARES, they found that the CPAP, FiO2, and the delivered relative humidity were within the predefined specifications. These bench findings support the use in clinical trials for the termination of this device's utility. Berlinski compared the delivery of 7% hypertonic saline 
to a model using an updraft nebulizer, two breath enhanced nebulizers, and a breath actuated nebulizer. He used a breathing simulator mimicking an infant, child, and adult, and employed cascade impaction to evaluate aerosol characteristics. Mass median diameter, percentage of particles less than 5 microns, and percentage of particles 1 to 3 microns were similar between the BEN and BAN devices. BEN nebulizers had the greatest airway delivery. Rhodes et al. evaluated the impact of environmental factors on particle size distribution from HFA albuterol inhalers. They used a laser particle size analyzer to measure particles in the 1 to 5 micron range, developing again the measurement of fine particle fraction. At varying factors, including cold versus hot, full versus middle versus nearly empty of inhaler actuations, shaken versus unshaken, and inhaler characteristics following water submersion. And you might think to yourself, well, why would they submerge the MDI in water and then use it on the patient? Because you have to remember that for a long time, the way to determine how full it was was to put it in water and see, did it float, did it sink, or did it, or did it sink part way? So they're seeing that if the patient had tested the duration that was left, how would that impact um, the system? They found that the fine particle fraction was reduced with cold temperatures and the early portion of the inhaler lifespan had higher FPF. There was no impact from shaking and the submersion reduced the fine particle fraction. Crestimano and colleagues evaluated the short-term impact of pressure control versus volume controlled breaths during NIV in subjects with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. A cross study of 20, crossover study of 27 ALS subjects included polysomnography and transcutaneous CO2 measured during ventilation both during the day and at night. They found greater asynchrony with volume control breaths while the arousal index was reduced with pressure control breaths. Patients preferred pressure control in 21 of 27 cases. The authors concluded that pressure control may be favored for NIV and ALS despite similar correction for hypoventilation. So I think it's really important that, you know, that we look at this because we often think, well, as long as the CO2 is the same, um, there's no difference between volume control and pressure control. These authors are suggesting that it's not just controlling the PCO2, but it is also making sure the patients are comfortable and sleep well. Of course, at the time of this recording, COVID-19 remains an issue um, in fall of 2021. Longino and coworkers describe respiratory mechanics of subjects treated early in the pandemic in Seattle. They retrospectively, retrospectively reviewed and recorded daily pulmonary compliance, PaO2, FiO2, and the use of prone positioning. Trends were analyzed separately over days 1 through 10 and days 1 through 35, stratified by prone position use, survival, and initial PF ratio. They reviewed data from 49 subjects demonstrating a fall in compliance from day 1 to day 14, from 41 to 25 milliliters per centimeter of water pressure. PO2 FiO2 ratio was higher among survivors, and prone positioning improved both oxygenation as well as pulmonary compliance. They concluded that COVID-19 ARDS, in their experience, was a, went along a similar tra trajectory to other more common causes of ARDS. Kochiko and Rangel and others evaluated gas exchange abnormalities following recovery from COVID-19. They evaluated 171 subjects performing pulmonary function testing and lung CT, as well as exercise ability. Most subjects, nearly 96%, 
had signs of residual pneumonia on CT scan and a carbon monoxide diffusing capacity that was below the lower limit of normal. During the six-minute walk test, 67% of subjects demonstrated a desaturation greater than 4%. Subjects who had required mechanical ventilation for COVID-19 had the greater residual dysfunction. I think we'll continue to see these studies of patients recovering from COVID-19, both um, hospitalized and non-hospitalized, ventilated and not ventilated, ECMO and not ECMO, um, to determine what the residual lung dysfunction is and will it pretty much restore itself after a year like most ARDS or is it going to be um, a, a greater prolonged dysfunction perhaps associated with pulmonary fibrosis. Homan and NIAC contribute a narrative review on the short and long-term complications of bronchopulmonary dysplasia. They suggest that long-term consequences of BPD may be best addressed through future research including better understanding are the mechanisms leading to BPD and management of BPD patients as adults. We appreciate you subscribing to the Restory Care podcast. We encourage you to check out the Restory Care channel on YouTube, and we appreciate your continued interest in the profession. Um, thanks again. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.